Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford, and today I get to talk to Alan Gross, Solutions Architect and Tech Lead at Sandia National Laboratories. I'm going to just do a full disclosure right now. I was so excited when Alex, our podcast manager, told me that we got to talk to somebody from Sandia, and I was like, no way, how? Today, we're going to talk to you, Alan, about um, Sandia's latest developments, but also I want to get your insights on Sandia National Laboratories initiatives and how DevOps really a lot, how DevOps is helping drive this mission. So welcome to Tech Transforms, Alan. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So let's get into it. All right. Well, first off, there there might be people in our audience, it's sh- shocking, that don't know what Sandia National Laboratories is. So can yeah. you talk about what it is and the role that it plays in national security and technology innovation. Sure, yeah, there's a group of national labs uh, throughout the country. There's, um, I believe two in California, two in New Mexico, um, and then Oak Ridge in Tennessee, and then there's one in New York. So, and I'm sure I'm missing some, but Sandia being one of those labs, it's you know technically classified as a federally funded R&D Center or FFRDC, um, we deliver science and technology not only to solve national security issues, but also to break new ground in industry. Um, so sometimes I was watching a YouTube video uh, about uh, micro systems and I saw the T-Bird logo pop up. This is something totally in the public domain. And I was like, oh, dang. So, you know, Sandia has its mark on a lot of things in uh, different industries. So... Um, the labs are part of Department of Energy, right? Yes. Yeah. So what, sorry, T-Bird logo? Is that Sandia's logo? Yeah, the Thunderbird. So Molly is on from Sandia. Tell us the history of the Thunderbird. <laughs> <laughs> this so, is how we do this. <laughs> so I think this dates to the late 50s or early 60s. They sent out a call to the members of the staff saying, hey, we want to design a lapel pin for five and 10 year anniversary. And the winning design had a little Thunderbird to sort of represent the Southwest on a turquoise background. And that's how the Thunderbird first became part of the Sandia culture. It be- is, has shifted in dimensions and the color of blue has changed a little bit over the decades but the very beginning of the Thunderbird is the logo was a nice. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for, so Molly is on also with Sandia Labs to make sure that Alan doesn't say anything <laughs> like I said that would get him thrown in a deep dark hole. So Molly's with PER, is that right? Media Relations, Molly? Media Relations, yes. All right, well, thank you for that little background. All right. So you told us a little bit of the history of Sandia National Labs, like who who you guys are. Um, How do you how does Sandia National Labs play into the role of national security? Right. So 
you know, Sandia uh, has a, a broad number of missions. So some of those include national and global security. My personal first job at Sandia was in global, global chemical and biological security. Um, so we were kind of like making trainings to uh, take abroad and help labs in other countries um, secure their, their assets that might be uh, like chem, chem and bio assets that might need to be locked down. Um, <clears throat> but of course we have the nuclear mission and we've made major breakthroughs with technology innovation uh, such as microsystems research. Um, <clears throat> there are folks at Sandy as well who do cybersecurity research and share that out with industry. Um, so it really spans spans the, the gamut there. So let's talk about microservices and serverless Perfect. architecture, which I think is your expertise now, yeah? It is, yeah. So how does that help support that mission? Well, within the labs, we you know we have a commitment to understanding how to build modern, secure information systems. So some folks will leverage that know-how to deliver cybersecurity research to industry. Um, in my case, I work to sort of empower Sendia's developers to do their jobs as best as possible. Um, it kind of means advocating for a shift towards microservice architecture and containerization for a variety of reasons. You know, For instance, because we can scan and uh, deploy containers a lot more easily. Um, within Sandia, you know, that mindset is a little bit new. Um, I, I think also because we have a lot of um, our own computing infrastructure and, and a lot of other companies out in industry are already on, on fully on cloud. They've been on cloud for a long time, but the requirements that, you know, a private company has are not the same as a national lab. So for instance, embracing containerization, our speed has been different. So you're not fully cloud. Are you like hybrid, some in the cloud, some not in the cloud is off? Yeah, we okay. we're, um, we work towards figuring out what we can put in the cloud, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, there is still a lot that we do on site as well. Okay, what about <laughs> um, DevOps? And might I include the buzz phrase DevSecOps? Yeah. something that, you think about on a daily basis? It is, it is, yeah. It's um, on my team in particular, we have two dedicated like DevOps, DevSecOps engineers. And we built a tool, kind of a homegrown tool that wraps around um, uh, uh, a existing CI CD provider. So that's, you know, continuous integration and continuous delivery or continuous deployment. Um, what that really means, and you know, diving into the DevOps philosophy, there are there are you know tenants that you can follow, but uh, just a high level summary, you know, DevOps is about trying to deliver quickly and learn from your mistakes as fast as you can. Uh, so shifting left is part of that philosophy. Like if you have security issues with your software, you want to know about that as quickly as possible because if you've already deployed to production. It's, it's almost too late, right? Like your developers have to go back and do a major amount of rework. So yeah, yeah and, and that just slows everything down. You have to go back, you have to redo your requirements, for instance, um, you have to rewrite code, you might have to pull back in more than just developers too. So 
one of the tools that we've developed within Sandia is specifically geared towards um, how do we take code, awesome code that other people, the labs have written? <clears throat> how do we build it for them? How do we test it for them? How do we um, run it through a series of scans, security scans, as well as like code quality scans, and then go ahead and deploy that to a containerized architecture? So is DevSecOps, I mean, is it DevSecOps, like that's just part of the process, or is that a separate I don't know if that's even, that's maybe probably a really dumb question, but I know no, there's no, DevOps no, no. and there's DevSecOps. So do right. you separate it or is it all, like you just do DevSecOps? Yeah, I think, I mean, the way we've been thinking about it is almost Dev DevSecOps is like DevOps 2.0. <laughs> right. It's just putting an em emphasis on the security portion as well. So um, is so adding the security portion in fairly new or is it something you've been doing for a while? It's something we've been doing for a while at Sandia. You know, I think cybersecurity has been a big deal for a long time, but I think there's more of a understanding now that it can be, it should be part of your DevOps process. You know, like for instance, I have an extension in my IDE, for instance, that will flag issues in my code as I'm writing it. So it's not quite as, um, like, well, let's just wait until the very end and somebody will come through with a scanner and just do some massive penetration test against this code uh, at the very end of the day, right? It's more like I, as a developer, I want feedback fast, not just on um, whether or not my code is working, but also if it's secure. And so that's mainly, I think, why the this security part of DevSecOps is being included more often now. Yeah, I mean, it seems like not having the security on the left side of things is like, this is probably a really bad analogy, but like building a house, you're all finished. And then you're like, oh crap, we forgot to put the HVAC system in. Right. Trying to go back <laughs> in and plumb, or we we forgot to put the plumbing in and we got to yeah. go back in and figure out how to retrofit this thing. Right. Yeah. It, it's the house is actually a really good metaphor. It's so it's funny. I saw a meme on LinkedIn uh, the other week. That was exactly that. It was a house that was like crumbling and all in disrepair. And there's uh, a contractor standing outside and a customer and the customer is like, well, why can't we add another window? And the house is like <laughs> basically falling over. It's like, well, no, we can't. We can't add the window because they're, the foundation is like, it's gone, right? And so, um, you know, that gets into technical debt, right? Where is, sometimes if you, if you have such uh, extreme fundamental security issues or quality issues in your code that it's just not fundamentally sound, it's like adding even tiny features can really be a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, it's like me with my house. I'm like to my brother who renovates houses. I'm like, why can't I just knock this wall out? And he's like, Carolyn, because the house will fall down. It's a bearing <laughs> wall. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, so you said you have an extension that will flag issues in your code. So like security issues, any issues, like it'll just flag. If this piece of code is not quite right, it'll say, hey, so there's an issue here. Yeah, I mean- we do have to 
they tend to be uh, like a series of different extensions. Sadly, mm. I have not found one mega extension that will just do it all. And we do have to, you know, pass them through our software governance process to make sure like, hey, is this actually okay to use because we don't want it sending code off to some remote server. Um, but yeah, in terms of what you might find in those kinds of extensions, like some of them do accessibility. So they'll underline things and say, hey, like you forgot to put alternate text. So somebody with a screen reader um, who might be, you know, visually impaired, when they reach this point in your in your site, they're not going to be able to engage with this image that you put here because it doesn't have alt text. So oh, wow. there are, yeah, there are extensions like that. There are some that check your HTML and just say like this is just not good HTML. Others that if you're coding in like C sharp, for example. Um, this one might actually be built natively in from Microsoft. I don't remember, but it will specifically tell you, um, you know, hey, like this um, practice that you're using, it relates to uh, maybe like this, uh, like CVE or something over here. Like you shouldn't do this. Like mm. don't do it. It's flagged. You know, uh, it's not a good pattern. Um, so depending on, and it depends on the language you use too. And so, I mean, that could be a whole nother tangent about the, uh, the languages that our team prefers using because of the community that builds up around them. You know, if you're using like some esoteric language, this type of tooling is not going to be um, as robust. That's so interesting. Like I wouldn't have even thought about things like needing to make sure that what you're doing can be seen by the visually impaired or like the different codes. So I, my my basic understanding of the DOE labs, you all work on different projects. And I'm guessing even within the labs, you have groups working on different projects. Yeah. Probably, you know, pretty contained, right? Within right. your group. Is that okay? Right. So can you talk about what you specifically work on or no, we can't go there. Yeah, I, I can. Yeah, I've actually published. <laughs> I've, I've been fortunate enough to get to publish a couple of different uh papers on on what it is that I do. Um, one of them is I, I briefly mentioned that uh, DevOps tool we built that wraps around GitLab. Um, it's called EPIC, which stands for everything's an acronym. I, it's yes, it is. in the government. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's our enterprise pipeline, you know, basically. And um, and so that's one of the projects I work on. That's DevSecOps related. Um, but so we wait, also... you build the tool for yeah. everybody in your lab yes. to use as part. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you're enabling other teams to bake in security into their development. Yes, exactly. Very and nice. the team, the team that I currently lead, it's called um, DevX is the title. We used to call ourselves the A team, but I think some some folks didn't like that because it was a little. <laughs> I love that. You should definitely go back to that. <laughs> a little overconfident maybe, but um, DevX stands for developer experience. And uh, so our goal is to empower developers at Sandia, other software engineers to do their jobs as, as best as possible. Um, so that means we, we not only build tooling like DevOps tooling, but we're also constantly pulling a lot of data and doing surveys to try and understand uh, what the needs are at Sandia, and in some cases outside of Sandia as well. Um, so that also includes uh, a data sciences mission 
um, as, as part of what we do. Do you share what you do from your group to the other labs as well? We try to. I, there's some growing community communities of practice, I think. Um, but I, I feel like, especially when, when we all get together in the National Labs IT Conference, we are, <laughs> there's always a lot of talk of, hey, like, what if we, we could collaborate better in this way or that way? And um, I would say the spirit is there. <laughs> How much do you lean into industry to help with the tools that you build? Oh I, yeah, all the time. Yeah. I assume you use a lot of open source. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I believe you had you had Dr. Stephen McGill on, right? From Sonatype. Yeah. I yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. And he was talking to you about um software supply chain type of work. Yeah. Specifically exactly. in the open source. Yes, he finally helped me understand how open source is not just an absolute disaster. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I just, I, people would tell me, no, this is how we secure it. And I'm like, I still don't believe you. But after I talked to Dr. McGill, I was like, okay, I got it. So, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's part of what we look at too, in, in terms of Epic, in terms of DevSecOps is, is trying to understand like, Hey, where, where did this package come from? Um, but um open source, yeah, it is important to the work we do. And I would say we're we're engaging industry all the time. Okay. So I want to ask you about an initiative that came out of Sandia. Um mm -hmm. where well, you it was recently announced in April that Sandia created the first global cloud resolving model to mm -hmm. simulate a world's year of climate in a day. So obviously that requires tremendous computing resources to run in a reasonable amount of time. Um, have you helped with that initiative? Have you, I mean, I'm guessing your DevOps tools have helped with that initiative. What, what can you tell me about that? Well, that was done in collaboration with uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory and it was their high performance computing resources, I think that um, were utilized in that experience, um, in that work. And so, you know, Sandia solves groundbreaking problems across, you know, national security, technology, and climate science spaces. Um, and I've definitely seen an in increased interest in learning from that data. Um, so for instance, we're working on pipelines to leverage our computing resources um, across on-prem and cloud environments. Um, and doing a lot in terms of, of data science as well. I'd like to also talk to you about an effort that Sandia announced to accelerate hypersonic weapons development sure. by working with sure. hundreds of contractors. First of all, what is a hypersonic weapon? Hypersonics is a weapon that can go faster than Mach 5. Okay. Um, and <laughs> the hypersonic missiles that Sandia is working on are non-nuclear but they're highly maneuverable. Um, say a ballistic missile can go faster than Mach 5, but it follows a parabola. And if you know your math, you can predict where it's going. Okay. But hypersonics awesome. are far more maneuverable. Awesome. Thanks again, Molly. So there's hundreds of contractors being brought in for this initiative. 
Right, for the hypersonics initiative. Yeah, the hypersonics, thank you. Has (laughs) the increase in contractors um, required any additional architectural or front-end development to sustain the influx of personnel? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I know in general, for as long as I've been at Sandia, our workforce has grown a lot. Um, So one thing that I work on is we're constantly thinking about the onboarding experience of these new folks. Um, So sort of in the UX, like the user experience realm, that means we've looked at a lot of data about that day one experience. Um, It also means that we've built up more tooling to survey and get feedback. Um, So for instance, right, like um, we, we take a look at like IT tickets. We want to understand our folks like getting the resources that they need um, in a timely manner. Are they able to connect in the Sandia's network, uh, for instance, uh, efficiently and effectively and, uh, and yeah, things like that. Okay. I want to ask you, and I'll give you a second to think about this. In your role of enabling like DevOps, DevSecOps. Yeah. What's the like number one or maybe one through three pieces of advice that you would offer when it comes to DevSecOps? Like what would you tell your developers? Do, don't do. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I could. <laughs> let's see. <laughs> That's an awesome <laughs> question. So I think it starts with just understanding that you are going to fail. And that's not easy always, especially I I feel like coming from, you know, just in general in our society, it's like you always growing up always wanted that gold star, right? And so it's kind of like a shift in mindset. But a lot of IT, it's about failing fast and failing forward. Um, and the same with DevSecOps, right? It's about iterations, really. How, how quickly can you get through a cycle to learn new things, to get new code and uh, new products out in front of your users, to understand how they engaged with that? Um, and it, that even goes into a realm which uh, we've sort of coined in our group. I actually don't know if anyone in the industry is using this term, but UX ops. So basically understanding the... Uh, the operations behind uh, how to build a better user experience. Because UX goes beyond just um, you know, UI, right? There's a lot to user experience. It could be uh, even, you know, we talked a little bit about the onboarding experience, right? That's that's a user experience too. And so in DevOps, you know, a, a lot of it is about you know, getting your code as as quickly put out there as you can so you can understand your user's experience. I think that's kind of at the core of the issue, um, but also it's you know it's a it's a team effort too. So you have to coordinate, collaborate really well. You have to get it culturally into doing things like code reviews um, and understanding how to uh, work with the same people day in and, and day out to read their code, understand what it is that they're doing, have a shared mission um, to solve problems and to come together you know, to do that efficiently. I love that. And I have never heard that term UX ops. So you just invented it and um, (laughs) we're going to get it out there. So you said something about people and this comes up often whenever I, I talk to thought leaders about innovation, um, 
the the people, the culture, working with people always comes up. And it made me wonder how accepting are the development teams of the tools that you build them? Are they using them or do you find resistance? <laughs> yeah, I think it's important that you understand what it is that folks are actually asking for. I mean, this happens a lot, even in uh, relation interpersonal relationships, right? Like they say, like when you when dealing with friends and family, you know, the five love languages. And if you try and give something that they to somebody that they don't actually want, and say, "Well, here it is. I'm like doing you a favor," and it might just build resentment. It's kind of the same in, in IT where enterprise IT, where it's we're trying our best to understand what it is that other developers at Sandia need. That means we need to go talk to them. And in, you know, a lot of times in government, you're you're dealing with inherently kind of siloed organizations that can be hard to do. And it's important that we survey them or even we have efforts at, at Sandia to sort of inner source code. So that's the idea of like open source, but within the organization, how do you take a piece of code and, you know, among Sandia's 15,000 approximately employees, how do you float it around and say, well, anybody is welcome to make this better. And in that way, you know, people can take ownership over what it is that they're being asked to use so that there's not just some like far off voice in a tower saying like, you will do this. Um, so I think having that, sort of grassroots connection is really important. Yeah, finding out what they want, what they need, rather than like you said, just shoving something onto them saying this is gonna help you. Cause yeah. I, that really resonated with me. I'm like, yeah, I've had people do that. And I've tried but to yeah. do that. <laughs> this will help you. And also there's some requirements saying that you have to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. In which case it's not, it's not really, uh, you know, at that point, it's, um, it, it, I could see how that would not feel amazing <laughs> to, to be uh, sort of pushed into using tooling like that. Yeah. What's um, been the biggest challenge that you've faced in your career? It doesn't have to be at Sandia, but. Yeah. We, I, sometimes I feel like my life is eerily similar to the Phoenix project, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that uh -huh. is a very well-known book in DevOps. Um, Isn't that, which, is that Kim Jean's book? It is. Yep. Kim? I'm getting you know it wrong. It. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, especially as a team lead, you know, learning to manage like that tornado of work that's inherent in the tech industry. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge I face right now. Um everything from like, how do we manage our, our logging systems better so that um, we can make sense of like the thousand alerts that we get per day um, to understanding unplanned work and how to triage that. Um, there's, I think, constantly a lot for me to learn and just a lot for me to share with the team, um, you know, in terms of because because everybody has their their own sort of focus of of I what, what would you call it like window of control I guess area of yeah area their of own control. perspective their right, own, own perspective right it's sharing those perspectives you know um and 
just trying to make sure like, hey, our, you know, is, is our DevOps engineer feeling overwhelmed today because of, you know, you know, this unplanned outage or, or whatnot? Um, what has been your funnest project? Like, have you ever had to fight, uh, what's the thing from Stranger Things? A demagogue? <laughs> yeah. The demagogue, <laughs> I think. Yeah. 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 Have you ever had to fight one of them? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I can't say I have, um, I don't really have a, a extensive enough collection of keyboards to like use as a weapon. Uh, <laughs> I, I just have the one, um, I'm not really, but <laughs> yeah, it's coolest project though. I, I really, especially when I was more in like hacker mode, when I was coding almost all day. I really enjoyed figuring out how to um, do do operations uh, like asynchronously. So that would be like, especially um, when you're trying to handle events going on that you, you just don't know when they'll happen. So for instance, mm. that, that could be like a user interacting with your product. Um, so you don't know when a user will take a certain action on your page. So you have to handle that in a certain way. And uh, you might have to like make requests out to different servers and do different things. And um, you're putting together, you know, it's almost like a ballet. I think I've always felt like code, like good code. It's very, um, it is almost like, especially when you're doing asynchronous stuff, it feels like you're doing a dance of sorts, but also good code should read almost more like prose, um, I think. And we, we had a developer book club and we were reading uh, clean code by, he goes by uncle Bob. I, I don't actually remember his full name, but uncle Bob. And that was some advice. He was like, well, you know, you're, you want to be able to sit down and have fun in a way reading code. Yeah. I've, I've always been like, I had a lot of fun doing that. Wow. I never, I would love to go inside your brain like, I don't want to take over your body. I just want to go inside your brain and watch the way it works for a minute. Cause I'm like, code as prose. Interesting. I never would have thought that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have like a, a last of us reference there now too, in terms of uh, <laughs> not, not taking over my body. I appreciate that. There we go. Um, <laughs> yeah. No cordyceps. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> but yeah, I, well, you know, because, uh, there are there's a lot of diversity i think in the software engineering realm and not everybody you know comes from necessarily a, a hard computer science background um, i'm always super appreciative of the people on on my team who do have that background but i don't for instance my undergraduate degree was in technical communication and so uh and my graduate degree was in information systems and I've been on a hunt to find my niche, right? Um, user experience has actually worked out really well, especially doing development within user experience because of, you know I like to code. And then I also get to go out and do some human factors kind of work and try and understand um, how people engage with software. And I personally find that very fulfilling. But you know, because of that, the, the ability to have that diversity I think you get a lot of different perspectives on code. And even earlier, I mentioned something about esoteric programming languages. Those are 
usually languages that people just write for fun just because they mm. they want to make something weird and mm -hmm. so it's like fan fiction for coders yeah exactly <laughs> there's one i think uh where you write you write code as like uh in shakespearean terms so it's almost like you're you're supposed oh to be sounding like shakespeare as you're coding um, okay you, yeah you can find all sorts of weird different programming languages out there. I, I think the point is to express that solving problems is, uh, can be artistic. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know, like even painters have to solve problems all the time. Yeah. You're not, it's not necessarily doing just math all the time. Um, well, and just, I mean, back to your UX ops, I mean, sure. when we hear user experience, we, most people will immediately go to the end user to me you know, what am I experiencing? But yeah. I always ask people to clarify, okay, when you say user experience, define that for me. Are you talking about system users? Are you talking about me, the end user? Right. Um, what are you talking about? And I love when you think about it, you're thinking about your developers. That's a new angle for me. And the truth is, if we're thinking, if you're thinking about your, your developer's user experience, it's going to make my user experience yeah. what it should be. Right. Yeah. I mean, it has to be looked at from all the different angles. Right. Yeah. That's exciting. I love that. And that's a good insight about looking at it from all the different angles. Because I think um, a lot of times in software, it's you have to kind of obsess over the details to get it just right. You know, it's not always good enough to be... Um, to say, well, okay, 90% of the time, this is good enough. It's like, well, that 10% of the time might still you know, encapsulate the frustration that thousands of people will feel with your yeah. product. Yeah, man, I totally agree. All right, I'm gonna take us to our tech talk questions, which are meant to just be fun, kind of quick answers. Um, so my first question for you, and you kind of touched on this a second ago, but if someone were to write a book about you, <laughs> What do you think the title would be? Yeah, <laughs> uh, probably something along the lines of uh, like learning to fail. Uh, <laughs> there was especially a lot of that. The greatest I... failure. That would be the title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be a good one. Uh, yeah, I know my uh, my old mentor and team lead uh, used to joke that a book about his life would be yeah, I, I'm assuming you've seen The Office and oh, yeah. uh, and Michael Scott wrote, I think he wrote a book called like Somehow I Manage and <laughs> he was like, yeah, that, that would be the one for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, okay. I like, I like the, the failure theme. I also feel like we got to have something in there about the UX ops. I'm really, that, that is such a fresh angle for me, at least. I really like that. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, you you mentioned that you've written a couple of paper of papers. Um, have you? Do you want to be an author? I mean, you are an author. You've written papers. Would you want to lean into that more? I definitely want to. Well, I mean, it's sort of a. There's a little bit of. Uh, it runs in the family. My sister wrote an entire book when she was like 22 um, <laughs> and published wow. it. Uh, for me, though, personally, I would just like to work on my technical writing skills some more. I mean, again, that was 
sort of what I focused on in undergrad. And I, I do feel like I'm sitting on a fair amount of content that I just want to get out there and post on medium or something like that. Um, but I, at the moment I'm like, dang, like there, there's a lot of commitment in doing that and like getting on medium and like, you have to sort of play the game and write, be publishing in a certain way and at a certain speed. But, um, I did really appreciate the opportunity to, to, you know, publish what I have and to, you know, the last paper I worked on was specifically about trying to detect outages, um, using user analytics data. And to me, that was just so cool. It was cool to write about and, um, Interesting. Where can we find this paper? It's called, let's see, you can find it out there on, I don't know, ResearchGate or something. Um, it's called Pattern and uh, Anomaly Detection in UX, or PADX for short, because, you know, again, everything has to be an acronym. Uh, <laughs> but so yeah. Pattern and Anomaly Detection in UX. Yep. I like it. Okay. Um, last, well, maybe not the last question. What's your favorite productivity hack? I try and keep it simple. I just put my phone somewhere else. Uh, Smart. <laughs> yeah, just out of the way. I mean, I think it's funny because a lot of times you, you see apps on your phone that will help you lock yourself out of things. And I'm like, well, I mean, you don't even need to do that if your phone is just physically not present. Um, but I, I read deep work by Cal Newport in 2020 and especially being like the height of the pandemic and you know being just everything in life was remote and I was trying to really figure out like okay like I'm at home um, all the time now and I'm trying to stay productive even though there's so much distraction going on so I, I really got into trying to understand like my daily distractions you know, and, and something crazy I learned was that you should try and limit, for instance, the number of times you open social media, possibly more than your total time that you spend on social media. Like if you spent mm. 20 minutes straight on Instagram over like one session, that would be a lot healthier, well, you know, relatively speaking, than opening it 20 times because each time you open it, it distracts you for it, right. it completely breaks your train of thought. So I'm reading a book called Stolen Focus yeah. and it addresses the myth of multitaskers. Like mm -hmm. basically it just says it's not real. And yeah. every time we switch tasks, so there was a study done um, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but task switching. And when there were like a bunch of task switches happening and then they would do an IQ test after a simple IQ test, after they had them do a bunch of multitasking task switch kind of things. And they found that the IQ dropped to the level of somebody smoking pot. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, so we can either multitask or smoke pot while we work. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it was, I mean, it's that. So to your point, you know, just going back and forth, opening that app multiple times, rather than just, if you're going to do it, then go all in and focus and then be done with it. Right. So, mm -hmm. okay. My last question for you is, do you have any good um, recommendations for our audience as far as podcasts, TV, books, movies? What do you, what do you like to do in your downtime? Um, well, yeah, we've already touched on The Last of Us. I just finished... <laughs> 
watching through that. Uh, it was, I loved that. I love that show. Are, yeah. Are you a gamer? Did you play the game? When it no, came I didn't play the game. Um, okay. I still appreciate it anyway. I mean, I got really into the Witcher as well, even though. Oh I didn't. my gosh. I have the <laughs> whole entire book set of the Witcher. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Henry Cavill's not going to do it after the season, after yeah, the season. I know. I know. I'm not yeah. sure. It, it'll be hard to stick on after that loss. Yeah. Um, but yeah, podcasts. I I love listening to Adam Grant's podcast as well as Simon. He's Shane. fantastic. Yeah. His book. Whoa. Oh. <laughs> um, okay. It's called Think Again. Okay. Um, and it, it looks like it is his m most recent. Think Again, okay. The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. It It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and then also other books. So books. Yeah, I guess we. Have, I haven't mentioned books yet. I just discovered a book called How to Speak Whale, which is. Um, oh. Yeah, it's about what is using. That? Is it really how to speak whale? It, it is actually <laughs> there. What? There's, there's a, a work out there called Project SETI, which is if it sounds familiar, I think it's supposed to be like the original search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but it's with a C um, and uh, which it stands for, um, oh my gosh, what is the, I'm not a biologist. Um, Molly knows. Cetacean. <laughs> cetacean, there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's the family, but it could be the order. Yeah. And so they're, uh, they're using AI to try and decode patterns of, of whale vocalization. So part of that includes right. um, pulling just a ton of different recordings of whales just talking to each other. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that's somebody's job is to record all of those snippets of, of whale vocalization. And then they're going to apply AI to try and make sense of that um, sort of unstructured data like and decode it, their language yeah and if you get enough of it even without like uh sort of like rosetta stone so to speak if you yeah. get enough uh data of you know whale vocalization you can still start to you know find patterns wow super cool yeah. so i just heard that they're making headway with reading our minds so without like, I know that's super sensational, but I heard a story on NPR last week where they're hooking people up to fMRIs, watching the way their brains work when they hear a story, and then having them, I now I need to go back and read the article because I can't remember if they were having them say the story out loud or just think it in their mind, but using some GPT technology, hooking them up, you know, to these sensors, the GPT technology could spit the story out almost like perfectly mm -hmm. so that's not totally scary. reading our minds yet but we're getting there it's scary yeah. right yeah <laughs> all right well alan thank you so much for joining us today this has been super fun hour for me <laughs> sure yeah thank you for having me on once again uh it's it's been a pleasure to be here well, and Molly, I've really enjoyed having you like pop in and out too. Thanks. Thanks for being with us. I, I did want to add, not for this, but I was wrong about ballistic missiles. They don't follow a parabola. They follow a 
ballistic trajectory, which is okay. a modified parabola. All right, good. Thank you for that correction. So, all right. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Make sure you smash that like button and share this episode. And we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.